this morning, I have the privilege of reminding you again of the call from the Bible to those who are followers of Jesus Christ to make significant sacrifices so that our church, the church, can more faithfully spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus here and around the world. It's a privilege for me to remind you of this call to make those sacrifices because this call accords most carefully with what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he has done. It just makes sense in light of that to make those sacrifices. It's also a privilege because uh, there are many people in our church who are already doing so, and, and I get to affirm that this morning. So many of you give in significant ways of your time and your money and your energy. You sacrifice your comfort. You sacrifice your reputation for Christ's sake. You live in smaller homes or smaller apartments. You drive cheaper cars. You take less lavish vacations. You have less leisure time. You get less sleep. You watch less football. Uh, You finish fewer projects around your house. And you make many, many sacrifices like that, all for our common cause, the glory of Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't share in our common cause, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope, I hope you've been very well welcomed to our church. My goal for you today is I want to at least show you why the sacrifices that we make uh, make sense. Uh, maybe, maybe by the time we're finished, you'll agree with Penn Gillette. Uh, Penn Gillette is a uh, well-known author. He's a comedian. He's an illusionist. He and his partner Teller, Penn and Teller, have had a uh, show in Las Vegas for a, a number of years. Uh, Penn Gillette, uh, not too long ago, a few years, uh, put out a, a YouTube video where he responded to something that had happened to him. A businessman that he knew, uh, who was a, a Christian, gave him a Bible and asked him to read it. Uh, Penn Gillette is an atheist. This is what he he said, though, Pendulette in this video. I'm going to quote him. He's speaking, so it's not uh, clean English, but uh, you'll get the idea. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who do not proselytize. That is, those who don't speak to others about Jesus Christ. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that... uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselyze, saying, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, then he asks, "Um, how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming to hit you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I'm going to tackle you. You're in a company of such believers. Uh, We believe in heaven, we believe in hell, we believe in sin and forgiveness. So it makes sense for us to talk about significant sacrifices when it comes to trumpeting that message of forgiveness and life. And if you've been around Grace for a while, it's not going to surprise you to hear that I want to talk about those sacrifices from what is, at first glance, an unusual passage. Uh, You've gotten used to that, I think. I want you to go with me back 3,500 years to the book of Leviticus again. And take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 24. 
Leviticus chapter 24. Now, some of you are already there because you know the score, uh, but if, you do, if you're not there, Leviticus is early in the Bible. In fact, it's the third book of the Bible. It's within the first hundred pages or so, I would imagine, in the copy of the scriptures that you have, unless it's a monstrous study Bible. In which case, if you have a monstrous study Bible, you should be able to find Leviticus on your own. So, that's good. I don't know why I said that. Let's keep moving here. Um, we started walking through Leviticus about a year ago. Uh, we have, by my uh, accounting, Lord willing, about two months left uh, in this book. And this is the worship manual for the Israelites. Uh, and we've gotten used to the, the fact that there's a great deal of, of strangeness in this text. It's culturally strange. Moses did not put these commandments on his blog. He didn't Facebook about his encounter with God. He didn't uh, even print them in a newspaper. The culture is vastly different than our world. It's culturally strange. It's also spiritually strange. We worship the same God as the men and women in the book of Leviticus, but they lived in a different era. In fact, Leviticus helped define this era where the rules and practices for the people who wanted to worship God were just radically different than ours. So we read that, that through that lens, that careful lens. Let me, let me illustrate uh, this, the, the differences that, that unfold in the Bible this, this way if I can. Uh, some of you have been part of our church for a long time, your entire life, in fact. And I'm wondering when it dawned on you, when it occurred to you that there was, uh, was a point in time or you had reached a point in time where your Sunday school teachers or your youth group leaders could now become your peers, um, your, your friends. You don't lose respect for them because they're still your elders, but, but there's, uh, uh, you have a different relationship with them as you enter adulthood. One way that you can recognize that is, is how, you, how you identify them. At one point in time, it was very strictly Mr. and Mrs. But maybe you've crossed the threshold where it's now Bill and Joyce. Some of you actually struggle with that a, a little bit, I think. Actually, if you're one of the experienced teachers in our congregation and, and you, you, know, you meet one of these people, he, he's now 25, you remember when he wore diapers, don't remind him of that, okay, that's one thing. The second thing, give him a break, okay, please just tell them, you know, call me Joel, that, that's fine, you, you're more than welcome to do that. Welcome in, them into the community of adulthood. That's what happens with maturity. Relationships change. The book of Galatians actually uses that same illustration to talk about the differences, some of the differences between what's in the Hebrew Scriptures and what we experience as New Testament followers of Jesus Christ. These were mature men and women, but their relationship with God was a little bit more like a tutor with her teacher than with an adult son with his parents. Galatians makes that point. The chief reason for the differences between what, how these people related to God and, and how we relate with God have to do with the fact that Jesus Christ had not yet come in this era. These Israelites were the, had the blessing of being God's chosen people among the nations of all the earth. God had chosen to dwell with them. Uh, the problem was they were sinful people like all human beings. And there had been no yet permanent sacrifice for sin. And it is dangerous for sinful people to get too close to a holy God. It is as dangerous for those people as it would be for a snowball under a heat lamp. So we have learned as we go through the book of Leviticus about this very careful system. 
that God established in the book of Leviticus that, that establishes uh, uh, all kinds of things, priests and holy places intermediaries, uh, this detailed description of sacrifices, all so the people could enjoy a relationship with God so they would be safe. And the system emphasized separation from God. Sinful people, unholy people, separated from a holy God for their own protection. There was no yet a, not yet a permanent sacrifice, a permanent priest who could completely allow them to enjoy a close and intimate relationship with God. Now, one of the great ironies of history, I don't think I've mentioned this before, is that during the Middle Ages, the church reintroduced all of this separation. In fact, it it ordained new priests, it created new holy places, it it made more separation. So that if you were, say, in the year 1400, 600 years ago or so, and you were to go to church, you would watch somebody worship in a language you did not understand with the hopes that maybe some of the, the grace that they were accumulating uh, through their rituals would, would rub off on you. How, how grateful we are for the reformers who reminded us of the centrality of Jesus Christ. The, the Old Testament uh, created this separation and it found its great fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, who's the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect priest, the tabernacle, the temple, where people meet with God. Woe to us, <laughs> For, for adding that separation back in. God help us. Now, uh, we find here in the Bibles, we've been talking about Leviticus, all of these Old Testament practices point forward and they find their reality in the Lord Jesus. And we find here two ways in which Leviticus 24, uh, they, they point toward this anticipation of Christ who would come. Leviticus 24, the verse, first nine verses, is a simple passage Yet it's strange that it's here. Do you remember the last couple of weeks we were in Leviticus, we talked about holidays, the special events that were on the Israelite calendar. When we get, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks to chapter 25, we're going to talk about more holidays. But in the middle, there's these two scenes, one of them we're going to talk about today, one of them next week, that are just regular, ordinary, daily scenes. It's a very normal and mundane practice. Not a holiday practice at all. It's just something that they were supposed to do every week. Now, why, why did Moses interrupt himself this way? Why did God interrupt himself with this? I think what's happening here is that the Lord is trying to communicate to the Israelites, there are special holidays, there are special festivals that, that you will enjoy celebrating, but remember that in the midst of all of them, there is uh, weekly work to be done. Worship of God should be done diligently and faithfully regardless of what holiday we're in and what the calendar says. Um, we talk about special opportunities to represent Jesus Christ at Christmas time and Easter, don't we? And we have, uh, a church might have special events and special services and they're good. But Leviticus 24 says, be diligent, be faithful the rest of the year too. And, and that faithfulness, that diligence is manifest in two different ways. Two sacrificial practices that the Israelites were to engage in. They were to bring oil for the lampstand and they were to bring bread for the table. I want to look at those one at a time. All right, first let's talk about the oil for the lampstand. Leviticus 24, verse 1. Follow along as I read here. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning continually. Outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law and the Tent of Meeting, 
Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. The lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord must be tended continually. This passage is about a maintenance issue. Provide oil for the special lamp within the tabernacle. It stood right outside the most holy place. Now, remember that God has moved in with the Israelites. They live in tents, and he had them build a special tent for him. The tent is called the tabernacle. Eventually in the Bible, it would be replaced by a permanent building called the temple. And inside this tabernacle and inside the temple, there were two rooms. The holy place, the Bible calls them, and the most holy place. And the most holy place was where God in in particular took up residence. This box called the Ark of the Covenant that had the Ten Commandments in it was there, and God lived there above that box. His presence dwelled in a special way. There was a curtain or a a veil that covered it to protect the people. Again, uh, when I was in um, college, we had a solar eclipse. It was an unusual event. Uh, I don't remember all the astrophysics involved in what was happening. I've never been much into astrology. And so, astronomy, I was kidding. I'm not, I was just kidding. I didn't know that. Uh, Tough crowd. Okay, so, uh, anyway, uh, we all wanted to see the eclipse. They warned us over and over again, it's going to happen at noon. Don't look at the sky. You will think you're not getting the full effect of the sun, but you are. It's dangerous for your eyes. Don't stare up. And in fact, the science department... Uh, during the middle of the day, was out in the, one of the main courtyards of school, and they gave us special glasses that we could put on that would protect our eyes so that we could look at this uh, uh, phenomenon in the sky and not damage our eyes. This, this curtain functioned like those glasses. It protected the Israelites so that they could be in God's house but not be damaged by God's utter holiness in contrast with their sinfulness. Now, this is, this is a, a house... And since it's God's house, it needs a lamp. Every house needs a lamp. And here's the lamp that's in the house. It's very specifically described for us. In fact, I want you to turn back with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus is one book to the left. And I want you to turn with me to Exodus 25, and we'll see this lamp described. It's described in a couple of different ways in Exodus. Here it's how to build it, and then later there's a report that it was built. They're almost identical, those descriptions. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 31, this is God's instructions about the lamp. He's moving in. Here's how to build the lamp for my house. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make, it, make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Can you imagine what detailed work this is? Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and the third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and branches shall all be of one piece with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. Then make it seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. 
Now, you're probably somewhat familiar with the shape of this lamp. You've probably seen it in some Hanukkah celebrations. It, uh, this lampstand came to symbolize the nation of Israel. In fact, if you have ever been to Rome, there is an arch in Rome. It's the Arch of Titus. Titus in AD 70 went and destroyed the temple and he carried out the lampstand and inscribed in this arch, this celebratory arch, is a picture of a Roman soldier carrying a lampstand described just like this in Exodus. Uh, with, with the one center pole and the six branches, there's seven lights that extend from this, uh, that, that are part of this lampstand. And according to the instructions here in Leviticus chapter 24, the lamp is to burn all night long. Light in the evening and care for it in the morning. Now, why? You probably know the answer. Why is the lamp supposed to be lit? In fact, if you don't know, I'll give you a clue. Tom Bodette will help you figure it out. You know Tom Bodette, right? Tom Bodette, several years ago, was improvising. He's a spokesman for Motel 6. He was improvising at the end of the commercials, and he created this tagline off the top of his head that Motel 6 uh, has owned since that time. I'm Tom Bodette from Motel 6, and we'll leave the light on. Right? Light on for you. I did it wrong. We'll leave the light on for you, he says. Now, what does that mean? What is Tom Bodette, what are Motel 6 trying to communicate to you about uh, their hotels? <laughs> One cynic I read said, uh, our hotels are in bad neighborhoods. We put a lot of lights around. <laughs> That's not the point, all right? What, what the light is supposed to indicate is they're expecting you at Motel 6. You can come anytime. They're hoping for you to come. Regardless of the hour, regardless of how dark it is, our lights are on. You can find us. You can come. We'll leave the light on. You can come. In this, this tabernacle here, there's a permanent ordinance. The priests are on duty and the lights are always on. What does that mean? You always have access to God. You can speak and worship at any time you want. That's what the light is for. God has left the light on for you. And you can go any time you want and offer sacrifices. And the people were to bring the best oil that they had to keep the, burn, the lights burning. Um, clear oil of pressed olives. The most, the most precious part of the oil that they had was to go to the tabernacle. They weren't to use that oil in their own lamps. They weren't to sell that oil so they could buy a new ox. They weren't to uh, trade that oil for, for more fabric. It was to be brought to the temple as an act of worship. I wonder how the Israelites felt about that sometimes. Less pure oil, how does it burn? It, it's not as bright. Sometimes it's a little smoky. It, it may, maybe it's, it smells. Can you imagine sometimes uh, they, they, uh, um, they, they come in, uh, um, a man comes, comes into his tent and, and he sees and his, his family's gathered there, maybe they're going to they're gonna eat and, and the, the light is, the, the lamps are burning and it's, it's dark, it's a little hazy, it smells. Don't we have any better oil? Oh, his wife reminds him. We took the oil to the temple, to the tabernacle, to keep the lights on there. Now, it's not difficult to, to see here how this passage applies. You, you probably already under, started to think about this in your own life. As the Bible unfolds, light develops as one of the most po uh, potent images for God's truth or God's Son, the revelation of Himself, uh, the mission of God's people. He's the light. We proclaim Him as the light. 
and our calling is to bring what we have, not what we have left over, not what we can spare, but what is precious to us, what we could use, what we could put to other good purposes. We're to bring it to ensure that people faithfully, that us, that we as a people, faithfully unfold the glories of Jesus Christ to ensure that anyone can have access to God anytime. Notice, I want you to think with me about this chain of events that unfolds in the Bible as it describes the Israelites. It talks about them in, in terms of being different sort of people. As, as, the, as the Moses' story unfolds and as he, he deals with these people who first received the book of Leviticus, we, we hear them and read of them as enslaved people. They're people in slavery in Egypt. They have no power. They have no uh, um, rights. They're in, enslaved but then God rescues them. They become a rescued people. They go from being an enslaved people to being a rescued people. By his mighty hand, he brings them out of Egypt. Then huh, he makes a covenant with them and they become God's adopted covenant people, his adopted ones. They have a special relationship with him. They become, because of this adoption, this covenant, they become worshiping people. They bring sacrifices. And because of their worship, they become a witnessing people. Notice this transition. It's astounding. From people who are slaves, God rescues them and he brings them and his intention is to use them to shine the light of his truth all over the world. It starts in Jerusalem and the glow spreads. Now I wonder where you are in this chain here how fully you've bought into it, where you are in this, this process. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the New Testament says that you are enslaved. What are you enslaved to? The mastery of sin, your own selfish desires, your idolatry, your belief that there is out there some job, some movie, some amount of money, some relationship, some experience, that if you just get it, it will make you happy. It will finally satisfy you. If you I just had that house, if I just had this sort of golf game, if I just had that TV, it would finally make me happy. I'd be satisfied. It's an irrational belief. You can recognize its irrationality um, but just by watching television commercials. I don't see a lot of them, but I saw one not too long ago. Uh, uh, there was uh, this for a, a luxury car. Is it really rational to believe that if you have a certain sort of car, then you will suddenly attract a gorgeous women and that your whole existence will consist of you driving through the sun-dappled countryside with the breeze blowing in your suddenly thickened hair? Is that really rational to believe? If I go and buy that car, that's going to happen. People like that are going to be attracted to me and I'm going to have experiences like that and I'm going to look that good in my designer suits. It's irrational, but we're drawn to it. It's like a magnet that, that pulls us in. This is actually why sacrifice sounds so silly. Why would I sacrifice? I need, to, I need everything I have so that I can make myself happy, so I can satisfy myself in, in some way with something that I can get with everything that I, that I have. Sacrifice is unnatural to us. It's, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't, in our broken thinking, sacrifice is the irrational sounding thing. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus has come to rescue us. He himself is the ultimate sacrifice. You know, the worst part of being enslaved to sin is not the inevitable disappointment that comes from, from, from you seeking what's not going to satisfy. The worst part is that our sin makes us the objects of God's wrath. He's going to eliminate from the universe everything uh, that is opposed to him. And Jesus has come to rescue us from God's wrath by dying in our place, by bearing our penalty on the cross. You know, he didn't just come in weakness. The Bible says that if sin is a kidnapper and you're the hostage, Jesus has come not just to get you out, to pay your ransom. He ripped the kidnapper in half. That's how Colossians describes it. Jesus has publicly humiliated sin and death. He utterly destroyed it. He utterly defeated it. Is he able to rescue you? Oh, yeah, you should have seen what he did to death. Oh, can he rescue you? The Bible offers life and forgiveness to all who believe. The Bible also tells us that we have been rescued for adoption. In fact, you can't separate the rescue and adoption. And so adopted, God has called us to be worshiping people. I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, worshiping people who are witnessing people. I wonder where you are in this chain as you think about it, how how invested you are. Many, many of you uh, invest in significant ways. A few weeks ago, our financial secretary uh, put giving receipts in, in your mailbox. You, you probably got yours. I glanced at mine before I, I filed it away, and I'll pull it out when it's time to pay my taxes. And I, I just looked at it quick, and I saw that t- total that was there. I know what we give regularly. It, it comes out of our checking account. I, I set it up myself. Um, but it, it's surprising when you see those, those, those things. It's like getting your W-2. When you get your W-2 and you, you look at it and you wow, I made all that money? Where did it go? You know, when it's divided into little chunks, 52 or 26 chunks, uh, it's, it's not the same as, as when you see it there in, in its total. It, thoughts go through my mind when I see that. I, maybe you don't think this way. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks this way. But I, I think about the, the things that I could have bought with the money. That's why I pray that way often before the offering. I say, God, we, we're giving you this money because we love you more than the things that we could buy with it. And, and seeing that number, I thought about those things that I could buy. That was one of the thoughts that went through my mind. The other thought that went through my mind is, I wonder if there's a way I could make this number bigger. It made me really happy to see that. I was, I was satisfied with it. It, it reminded me I want to, and there are many of you who have bought into this. I'm not privy to the specifics, but I know that it's true, that there's many of you who, when you, when you come or when you sit at your computer and you, you set this up, you're committed to this. I want the light of the gospel to shine brighter and brighter and brighter from our congregation. Some of you, the, the investment you make is evident from your calendar. It's, it's on there every week, what, what you do. Next week, we're going to vote to affirm two new elders. And if the congregation affirms these men, I know what will be on their calendar one Thursday night a month for the next three years. Not counting all the other appointments and visits and meetings and calls that they're going to make. Maybe your investment presses in on you on Wednesdays. You run home from, from, from work. You wolf down your dinner. You put a green shirt on or a red shirt. You much rather would put on your flannel pajamas. But you put this green... This, green shirt on 
oh, look at me. And then uh, um, you, you run out the door and you come and you, you cheer for these little kids as they run in a circle and you listen to them say Bible verses and then you, you go home and, oh, or you come and change diapers or, or something. Maybe, maybe you feel on Saturday evening when oh, final preparations for tomorrow, I've got to teach these kids, what am I going to do? You punch things out from curriculum or tape things up. You're doing what you can. You're making the sacrifices that are necessary to ensure that the gospel shines brightly from our congregation. In light of who he is and what he has done, this makes the most sense of any decision that you can make. Nothing makes more sense. Nothing is more important. Our hope is that every member of our church would be invested in this as much as possible in this world-enlightening endeavor uh, that we have. We want to encourage one another in this endeavor. You're going to talk about that a little bit tonight at your growth group. How am I investing? And I want to ask a question to start you thinking here. What is it that determines the level at which you invest in our church's work of light shining. What, what is it that, that is, is keeping you or setting you at the level at which you're invested in this? I want to press you about this. I know there are a lot of things about you that I do not know. So I want to, I want to be really careful. You may be in a position uh, where you are maxed out. You have little children at home. Or if you're running a small business, if you're caring for an ailing spouse or aging parents, you, you may be maxed out. Some of you, some, some of you shrink back because you've been burned in the past. I don't want to deny that at all uh, as, as a reality. Does anybody write about being burned by churches clearly, more clearly and more specifically than the Apostle Paul does? Does anybody? What I fear for some of you is that your level of investment is determined by your habits more than anything else. Uh, uh, other people might do it, but I'm just not the type of person that goes on summer missions trips, the summer camps. I'm not just not the type of person who responds to a call to pray with others or who joins up with some ministry. That's just not the level uh, that I am patterned to pursue. I wonder why that is, though. Do you, ever, do you ever notice yourself falling into bad habits? My wife and I have talked about some of um, our bad habits recently. You, you wake up one day and you realize, oh, what, what, am, I, what am I doing? Why am I, why am I spending so much time on my phone? Why am I um, going to bed so late, watching television too late in the night? Or why am I eating this so, so, so poorly? This habit creep in your life. Brothers and sisters, don't draw lines around your investment in our congregation for empty reasons. What if, what if the truck that I want to warn you about is not the truck of the Lord Jesus uh, uh, coming in, in judgment, but, but the, the Lord Jesus' return, and, and you have em empty things, inconsequential things? What I fear for you is that you're shaping your life for something that is as insubstantial as fog. We look outside. We had fog this week, right? Significant fog. Sometimes we look out our back window of the, of the parsonage and we can't see the church. We joke at our kids with our kids. Somebody stole the church. We can't see it. The fog's blocked it away. And then the sun comes out. When it burns the fog away, almost instantly, it's it's gone. It's insubstantial. What if when the Lord Jesus comes back, 
I want you to have good reasons. I want you to have, have uh, um, confident reasons to be able to speak to him about your investment that you made. And I, I don't want you to say to God, well, I, I pulled back, see, because there was a game that I, that I wanted to play. There was a, see, there was a championship and I was trying to earn a scholarship to go to college or I was trying to get my kids to play so that we could win a scholarship to college and so, well, we just missed a lot. Or, you know, Jesus, people were mean to me. They they rejected me. They, they, I tried to help them and and they, they just didn't like it and so... I decided to stop. Brothers and sisters, my, my concern is the son of righteousness is coming back. And his appearing will put everything in clear view, its consequences and its weight. Don't act in light of the fog that will dissipate when the sun comes. Now, the, the theme of, of sacrifice here it continues as the Lord's instructions about bread at the table. Um, I'm not going to do much more than read this passage here. It's an imbalanced sermon. But look with me here at verse 5, all right? Leviticus 24, verse 5. Take the finest flour and bake 12 loaves of bread using two-tenths of an ephah for each loaf. Uh, arrange them in two stacks, six, six in each stack, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. By each stack, put some pure incense as a memorial portion to represent the bread and to be a food offering presented to the Lord. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. In addition to the, ta- the lampstand in this room would be a table. It's also described for us in Exodus. We won't, we won't read it. It's about three feet long, one and a half feet wide, two and a half feet tall. And on it, the Israelites were to set bread, 12 loaves of bread, probably one for each of the 12 tribes. And I think th- they didn't use yeast, but they would be pretty big loaves, seven cups of flour, a loaf of bread. That's, that's what um, uh, two-tenths of an ephah is, seven cups of flour going into these loaves. Now, what was the bread for here? This commandment is walking a very fine line. On the one hand, this commandment is to to emphasize to the Israelites, yes, God does live here. You live in your house, you need light, and you need food. God actually lives here. On the other hand, though, uh, this commandment is trying to avoid putting God in the same category as the other gods worshipped by the Canaanites around the Israelites. They believe, we've talked about this before, the Canaanites believe that their gods, Baal and Asherah and other gods like that, uh, they would make, they have little statues of them in their home and they'd put food in front of the gods in an effort to feed the gods. Um, they would feed the gods with the hope that the gods would be kind to them. They're trying to appease the gods by giving them food. Actually, and I've mentioned this before, they would dress their gods up in clothes and they would take their little gods to their neighbor's house so their little gods could visit with their other neighbor's little gods. Uh, we do the same thing today. It's called Barbie. So, um, but what's happening here now is God does not want you to be confused about um, the bread. He's not like one of the Canaanite gods, so there's this very clear pres- prescription. This, what's supposed to happen with the bread? Once a week, the priests are supposed to eat this bread very publicly. They're to carry the bread out and eat it. The incense that they put on the table gets burned to God, 
and the bread gets publicly eaten, not by God because God doesn't need anything from you, but, but, by, but by the priests. Uh, what's, this, what's this talking about here? It, the lampstand speaks to us of the light of truth. This, this bread is worship that communicates that God is the provider. This is the bread of provision. God sustains, He provides, He gives to His people. He sent the sun and the rain. He's given strength for the harvest. And of the finest flour that they processed, they made these loaves and they gave them back to God as an act of worship. This is part of the message that we trumpet. This is why making sacrifices is even possible because God has given us to, to us so generously. He provides for us. Through Jesus Christ, he's given us life and forgiveness and through him, all things that we need. It makes that significant sacrifice possible because he, he provides. He gives us the strength and the help and the mercy and the provision. In his little commentary on the book of Philippians, D.A. Carson writes about followers of Jesus Christ who shrink back. He says this is a little crass, but let me read what he says. I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate my covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies cherish self-denial and consider missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. God, save us from $3 worth of the gospel. Let's pray, shall we? Oh God, you have provided for us. You have given to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus, and, and, and in so many ways. Lord, we confess to you, we fail in, in, in how we think about these things. We fail, we fail because we, we believe the lies that the products that we, we, we want, we, we believe the lies of, of what they'll give us. We, we fail because um, we at times are um, in, indulgent and we are distracted and we are um, lazy. Sometimes we're, 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 we're tired. We, we fail in this great calling that you have given here in this one small picture to the Israelites and, and throughout the scripture to, to us all. We confess to you that we are in, inclined to uh, evaluate others by our own sacrifices. Knowing little about them, we, we, we judge and determine and, and set the level that they ought to be sacrificing um, by our own standards. And we confess our failure to you in, in that regard, our self-righteousness and our, our pride. Oh, Lord, we are a rescued people. Like you, you brought the Israelites out of Egypt, you have rescued us from sin and death through the Lord Jesus. And we ask that according to your kindness, 
uh, you would infuse further into our congregation this glad sacrifice so that the access to God that, that we believe we have through the gospel would be trumpeted and proclaimed faithfully in our church. Grant us focus, passion, and longing to see it fulfilled in our church through us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.